Today on the Real Guy Podcast, we sit down with South Florida fishing legend Steve Kantner. Steve has guided us through the fishing scene since the 70s, with articles in almost every fishing magazine ever published. Steve has written four books and is currently self-publishing his fifth right now. His stories have intrigued anglers for over five decades. I am proud to have him on the Real Guy podcast because he is the epitome of a real guy. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Steve Kantner. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy podcast. We pick up the conversation with Steve Kantner and his relationship with one of the best photographers in the outdoor world, Pat Ford. How long you known Pat for? God, I must, it must be. He used to write a column for one of these, a back page column for one of these fly fishing magazines that we affectionately nicknamed Pat in the Back or Pat on the Pack. This must be 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I've known him a really long time. I only know him from his photographs and the pace that that guy keeps considering he's older and somewhat retired is unbelievable yeah yeah. he's in alaska one week he's in california the next week he's taking photos he's putting them online he's worn out now i'll tell you he he, and you know something about pat his heart is good as gold i mean i know you know there's always this friction between doctors and lawyers and most of the guys that i know doctors love him because he's not an ambulance chaser and he always speaks the truth and his pictures you know he's he's i'll tell you the truth i don't want to talk about his business but you know he he buys his photographic stuff right here in the neighborhood at a place over here in andrews it's called reef Mm -hmm. and that's where he gets his underwater stuff and i know um, because he's taught me that most of the stuff he shoots he only uses like two settings and they're uh, you know uh, ai settings one of them is uh the the ones like the el stupido settings i mean he's not doing all this fancy stuff (laughs) right keep it simple yeah he keeps it simple now i was reading his posts and um he was talking about cameras and equipment and everything he says dude you're only as good as what you get in front of that's right and the way that guy travels and what he gets in front of no wonder his shit's so good. Hey, they asked, they asked that guy, the astronaut, Grissom or whatever, uh, with that moon shot, you know, with the moonwalk and everything. Right. They said, how did you shoot that? And he said, location, location, location. <laughs> right. Speaking of locations, we're at the world-famous tennis club here in... Uh, Lauderdale Tennis Club. Been here for well, as long as I've been married, which remarkably is going on a little over 40 years. Isn't a lot of like superstar tennis they players been here on. over yes, the years? Yes, absolutely. Because I remember when I was uh, in high school and Chrissy Everett was such a big deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she was in here constantly. And there Her was. Ron owned a building, I mean, an apartment in this building. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had to, you know, I graduated with her sister, but. Real nice girl. I, I know her. In middle school, we were running around here chasing girls around steve of course we were <laughs> i mean lots of them no no lots of them that's you know that's one thing i don't want to say anything that kind of typecasts me but back in those days if you were good or bad at that your dad was proud <laughs> right you got a pat on the back yeah yeah and a little extra something in your allowance i think the dads are just nervous wrecks nowadays they're not sure what they're supposed to be oh, doing anymore God, no i don't know i got lucky i got lucky my 15 year old girl um, is a role follower, an excellent student, and for, I don't know how, but she shows like ridiculous amount of responsibility for oh, somebody her age. Beautiful young lady, really. I, I met her briefly, and she, uh, yeah. And uh, speaking of the worm, what do you think about that redfish catches she got the other day? I think. Let me say, I, I usually I don't you know ooh and ah about stuff, but I wanted to contact you privately where other people couldn't see it. And I've known about stuff like that through the years, but never anything like that. And particularly caught, and I don't, we don't have to say where, but on the inside. Right. Yeah. And I've seen in my time as a fishing rider and a guide where they've ducked inside places like Palm Beach Inlet or Jupiter Inlet, 
and a big school of big fish, you know, 10 pound fish you know, mm-hmm. like this, and have stayed there for a week or so. And these FWC guys are running around doing donuts, jumping from boat to boat, writing citations, and a lot of these people. <laughs> you know, they didn't know. I mean, they thought, what is this? This is awful big for a croaker. Right. And I think, um, I think mo- I think I've caught only three redfish here in Broward County in my entire life. Yeah. The kid caught four big ones that night. Yeah. I, I took a client out two nights later, and we got a couple more. And then I tried it again two nights ago, and they're not there. So... Hey, moving on. Right. I think they're passing through. I think they come through during the mullet run. Yep. Speaking of the mullet run. Yeah. The only word that comes to mind at this point is pathetic. Yeah. It, it's And nobody will talk about it. And you see all these posts and, you know, get out here and do this and that. And a lot of these, um, I don't mean to be... Uh, Disobjective, but a lot of these lady anglers and eh, really nailing them and all this kind of stuff. And I'll say, You went? Oh, yeah, I went. So, what'd you catch? Well, I caught a ladyfish. Right, right. I mean, come on. Right. No, the, um, yeah, it's all about perspective. Um, the media really, at least the outdoor media, really doesn't do it justice talking about the way the mullet migration and not just the mullet all the bait the white bait and the ballyhoo's offshore and the schools of goggle eyes you know they'll talk about um the bits and pieces that are still there yeah no it's 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 let me say uh what we called it on the beach and i had a couple of friends who were commercial hook and line guys and this is back i'll tell you when it started it was right around 2012 and we referred to it as the end of the world and i wrote some stuff i I wrote something for i'm trying to remember i think igfa put one of these articles in about the uh what do you call it forage fish shortage and I was, after a while, you had to send it to one guy to edit, another guy to edit, another guy to edit, to see that the tone was right. Right. In other words, they've got to keep you interested enough that you can still rip off a check. Right. For right. these organizations, you know, or uh, we had uh, somebody in office at the time who, uh, uh, when uh, Congress passed uh, the Bill Fish Conservation Act, which was a good deal. But I had friends up in Wisconsin who were buying blue marlin in the Kroger's, for God's sakes. Right. Now, I know that there is, you're allowed, we're allowed to import that from Hawaii. Okay. But a lot of this stuff, producto de Mexico, you know, this kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. Right. And there's so much of that. And nobody could be more critical of the outdoor media. And, I mean... I've reached a point in my life when I don't have a lot of, you know, juice left. And what are they going to do? Not take my work? (laughs) Right. Fire me? I mean, you can't. (laughs) You know, an expression that Ford made one time, he said, don't try to fire an unpaid employee. (laughs) Right. I'm going to use that. Yeah, no, by all means, he'd love it. Steve, let let me start the conversation. What was the first... What was the first piece that you ever published? Uh, I'm going to say, excuse me, when I was in basic training in the Army, I wrote a poem for a kid in basic training. I still, I don't want to repeat it. It's kind of to a girlfriend or whatever, and he paid me $4 for it. I wrote it on a piece of notebook paper. The guy's name was Jim Diltz. This is, I was 20 years old, and I mean, I'm, you know, 74, almost 75 now. And I still, I, st- I wrote the thing down. And it's, uh, that was my first paid work. Then afterwards. Uh, Wait, what, what year? That would be, that was like 1970. Okay. Yeah, I remember that was the first time I was married. And I was up at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And, uh, you know, you were spoiling for something to do and every nickel counted and stuff. And uh, anyway, er- thereafter, um, I came here when I got back. I got out and like it was 1971, I believe December of 71, because I had a look because I applied for this Fox uh, Nation deal or whatever, you know, and you get a free year if you served in the armed forces. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I did what I did is we I was drafted, and the deal with the draftees was that 
um, they would give you a six-month early out. And, I mean, a lot of us didn't really want to be there. I mean, we were happy, you know, when we were called, we were happy to go. But we got a six months early out in exchange for a year's reserve duty. And I was, around Christmas time, I got out in, uh, I think, early November or late November, whatever. And within a month or so, I was signed up down here in Route 84 at the 631st Maintenance Company. And we did stuff, you know, you'd go one weekend a month, and then in the summer, they'd drive you up to camp wherever it was. And mostly what we did, you know, we'd have like a deuce and a half, and we'd get in there, and we'd drive it around the corner and get it dirty, and then come back and wipe <laughs> it down with diesel oil and stuff. A lot of those guys to this day are still alive and are still friends of mine. Really? Jimmy O'Connor had this big hotshot ad agency that I think in some ways helped broker that deal where that guy, what's his name, uh, uh, the, the guy that had all, all the boat companies and everything where he put them together in this multi-million dollar conglomerate. I know he advised on that. and Yeah, he and I, this Jimmy O'Connor and I used to, used to fish together. He still sends me stuff every day. I had, uh, <clears throat> there was a, our company commander, a guy named Riley Richards, he was married to Scott Boyd's sister. Wow. When I worked at Boyd, yeah. Now, Boyd, um, Boyd's was a famous or long-running uh, bait-and-tackle store here in town. Oh, it was it And was it what was, was the go-to yeah. place for the longest time, Boyd's Bait and Tackle. 18 so, Northeast 3rd Street, yep. So, Steve, you lived through the transition of Fort Lauderdale first as a um, military base, then yeah. as a spring break type place, as a beachy town, yeah, yeah, to to what it is today, and through the years you've written either for magazines or your own books, and you've kind of kept pace and brought an audience through the times. Is yeah, it- well, there's not many of them left for the old days. I wasn't here back, uh, you know, in the days of. Uh, well, I mean, of course, we had some military heroes that came from here. Sandy Nininger, the first guy in the, what was it, the Second World War or whatever, to win a, a Congressional Medal of Honor, that street that goes into a War Memorial. But I sure was here for the college stuff. And I used to check IDs at the elbow room. We used to go, oh, I remember <laughs> awful stuff. It just ter- Awful or great? Oh, t- absolutely terrific. I mean, <laughs> some of these feminists would take a pliers and rip my tongue out or so or worse for the <laughs> shit we did. But, you know, some we as I look back and some of these girls from back in high school are still friends of mine. And, you know, we had a lot of fun with it. We didn't we weren't using anybody. We were getting used and we loved every minute. <laughs> <laughs> now, the. um yeah, the uh, the spring break days was the first of us getting lunkers in people's faces. And what I mean by that is we used to catch these giant snooks and jacks along, oh, the, yeah, yeah, along right. the seawalls. And then the traffic from the spring break would be all around us. And they're looking at us, yeah. you know, running up and down the seawalls with big fish. And that was the original getting lunkers in somebody's face. Um, we used to, they used to go in the fishing pier. When Angler's Pier was about from here to the clubhouse long and... The beach wasn't as built up then, and we used to fish for sharks. Nobody had any money. We used to make our shark rods out of lemonwood shovel handles. And we'd have a, we'd get a CO2 cartridge and cut the one end off and braise a roller tip on there. We used to wrap the guides on with 70, uh, whatever, 24-strand nylon, and we used to keep the reels on with hose clamps, and you couldn't get anything as far as that. But you, this reel, I had drag washers about the size of a, I don't know, the, the rim on the top of a soda bottle, but you could stuff a 600 yards, 80-pound Dacron, which was expensive. I mean, that was like a week's pay if you, you know, working in the summer right. on that thing, and... God, we caught some great fish. I remember stuff. I remember landing my friend when we were 13. I remember this because his birthday is the same day as mine. And we had a, dare I use the expression, Jewfish Goliath grouper that was hanging on. Don't don't start offending people, Steve, for crying out loud. But anyway, this thing (laughs) swimming up and down the pier, and my friend hooked it on a Calcutta, and it went screaming out in the old days in that old pier. 
they had struts between the pair, and I remember, and I'll say his name, and I, he wouldn't mind it, Bill Rakovich used to be the old pier master, and I remember my friend handing that uh, 9-0 on the whatever, or that was a 6-0, and handing it down and, and walking it up the other side, and this is after loosening up the break and letting like 300 yards of line run out across the reef and snagging the line and having it in his hands. <laughs> and my friend would tighten that thing up again and threw it tight to that thing and cranking it in. I think it was the first one was one was 307, then they got another one 367. And back in those days, there was no restriction. And we'd load them, pull them up on top of a car or whatever and drag them down to Bahia Mar and we'd sell the meat for I remember seven bucks a, or seven seven cents a pound seven cents a pound oh I remember this and the sharks and I remember there was this guy God rest him that I used to fish with um, and uh, I remember it was fourth of July one year and they had caught a big nurse shark I mean we had some real I mean I'm talking about ten and a half feet I mean 450 pound polywogs and these two guys were riding one and i remember jim butcher look at baker he's coming for me baker said to hell with you he's got me and the thing came over and gummed him by the knee and shook him like a terrier they're big at an, an attitude incidentally i've dealt with them before <laughs> and they're they're meaner enough cassowary i mean they, and, and i remember blood gushing everywhere and this guy phil walking, striding, ceremoniously blood to his old Volkswagen and driving over here to Holy Cross. I remember that, you know, like, uh, no, and all that. I remember Baker and Baker's sister and the one guy, or Baker coming in and his sister was living with this guy in the apartment. Sister, come with me. This apartment is in disarray. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, and back in those days, um, you could actually be very um, productive fishing from land because there was so much oh, access yeah. to the water. Yes, you could. And is that how you basically became the original land captain? No. You know, <laughs> I was, let me say, I had a boat. I had a 16-foot trihull, a Woodson, right. that I started fishing offshore with. And I got that around the same time that I got out of the service or whatever. I mean, that thing, it, I, I had a 35 or a 40, I think it was a 40 Evinrude. And the the deck was so thin you could read a newspaper through it <laughs> and i used to go offshore out here by myself and i'd jig runners and we used to go out in fact i just wrote something about this for somebody today i'd i'd, I'd pull a hand line out there by the whistle boy and you know where what depth you were in we didn't have depth recorders because it was always depending on the wind and either 90 anywhere from 90 to 120 foot and you go upstream from there with a string of feathers on a plane and, and you'd catch these we used to think they were little bonitas but they're actually frigate mackerel and you bring the thing up and cinch the tail get the, the of course the cleat would be in the boat and the needers would be swinging along swimming along right here next to the motor well and you know we just take one when we needed, they didn't have live wells back then, through deck live wells that could really, you know, circulating that pumped it. And the one thing I just wrote this in the steel, I said, don't ever reach your hand in the water to grab one of these, you know, to hook it on or whatever. You have a rod rig because you don't, you never know when a cooter or a wahoo's coming. And I think more than one guy lost his fingers doing that. Oh, we used to have guys, I remember. Bill Timms, old Greenbottom, some of these other guys. There was a guy I knew. I, I had a friend. I went to Cardinal Gibbons. He was a, a among other things, he was a backgammon champion and a coin collector. And he had a friend of his, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. He lived down um, sort of by Lauderdale Yacht Club. And this guy had, they were out in the boat, and somebody was billing a, a sailfish, and they didn't know how to do it. They didn't put it over here. And it went into his, and he, he was paralyzed. So, St Steve, tell me, um, how many books have you published in your writing career? I think four now. Four? four? Yeah, I didn't publish them. I mean, other... That have been published. Yeah, yeah. Now, the 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 new book that you're getting ready to publish just now? Or yeah, is it this, already this published? one, no, not yet. If you're going to be a writer, it's just like you, you decide what you want to do. You want to reach a point where you're satisfied that you've done the very best you can with it. Right. I mean, I can't be a de Maupassant 
or a Shakespeare. And I, I really, some of these guys uh, who enjoy a lot of uh, regional popularity down at Key West, I don't want to write like him. I want to write like me. You want to have your own original style. Yeah, I want to have a voice, and I want to make sure that anybody... Well, this is one thing, actually, Hemingway did say this. I want everyone to enjoy my writing. And I want it so that every time you pick it up and you read it, it looks a little different to you. And, you know, I got so typecast. You know, it's this land captain thing. This is like Mr. Spock in the ears. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, hey, Kantner. Heard good things about you. Think we can use you. <laughs> they would call. They would come and everything else. And I, I, I hesitate to make any social generalizations or whatever. But uh, a lot of these people can smell weakness. Right. And uh, they know. Uh, and there are certain ways to spot it. My attitude is usually if they call me, it's, it's like everybody else has left the building. <laughs> because I'm arrogant and I've finally gotten so the answer isn't always oh thank you you know I'm, thank you so much for thinking of me right uh, I mean I got stuff to do I mean it's a chore to make dinner I mean Vicky makes them for me I make them for her but things are different and, and I mean you have to do with a uh, this thing is I, I have to do a lot of stretching and walking and stuff like that and you really have to put this time aside for it it's not just all shaking and stuff this uh, lady I told you about you know is always looking for what can you do for me and I said you know it's right as you were driving up I said there is something I can do for you I don't want to go have coffee with you I don't want to go have lunch with you because of course you know, it'll end up costing me a bunch. And all that's <laughs> going to happen is I'm going to end up throwing my food all over you <laughs> with this Parkinson's. Do you, th do you think that the authors in the outdoor space are just like crazy underappreciated because people don't understand the energy that it takes in order to acquire that type of content? I think there are two problems. Uh, number one, uh, a lot of people, the magazines in particular, are disappearing faster than gonorrhea spores okay yeah, now they're going by the way yeah side, big there's time. not much and as a result advertisers aren't throwing a lot of money into them right and what the editor is empowered to pay is based on the circulation the money he takes in that's one of the problems and i think they have like a budget what they can work with and stuff and i think these guys are cutting and pasting and putting checks around and stuff like that I'm still waiting on another one, and I didn't even want to write the next assignment until I got it. But the other problem, I think, with outdoor writing is everybody thinks, it's easy, I can do this, I go fishing, I can write about it. You know, when I get, like I was telling the one guy, I think I'll write, when I retire, I think I'll write a book. And my answer to that is, yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you will. Everybody's going to write a book. Yeah, they're all going to do it. They're all, they're good. Writing's easy. <laughs> Let me tell you, there's something. And if I'm a little stinky now, it's because I wrote this morning. We had a saying. This is one guy who was a, it still is a big shot editor. He said, when I got up from writing, if my clothes didn't stink, I didn't think I did much of a job. So that was the dedication and the work. Well, it's it's the, the hormones, the, the, the stuff that flows out of you. Yeah. Right. Right. No, it's a different type of energy. Yeah. And um, I think it's, you know, greatly underappreciated. And then every once in a while, um, enough people will read one book where that energy will blossom and grow and spread. But it's, Hopefully. it's, a, it's a bit of a shot in the dark, no? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the truth about a lot of this writing, frankly, and I, I don't mean this as being deprecatory to other people who may be more talented than I am, is a lot of it just isn't that good. Right. And, you you know, when I go by, if, if, if I'm going to, when my wife goes to the store and if I want to treat myself to some hot dogs, she buys a boar's head. Right. I mean, for a dollar more or whatever. I mean, you know. So the quality, the quality just isn't there and people. Possibly. I, that's a determination I don't see 
not being an editor any longer, I don't see that the work doesn't go across my desk and I can't make that determination. I believe anybody who takes the time to send me something, and I just went, I'm not going to say round and round with somebody, but in the days that I was an editor, um, as soon as I would receive a submission, first of all, I didn't want things across the trance, and that's where somebody decides they're going to send me something and I'm supposed to jump over backwards. They would query me with some ideas, and I'd say, yeah, do this one. That's what Weekly does at Florida Sportsman. Yeah, pardon me, I like this. And then um, we would kind of refine the concept, and I would do some stuff and whatever, and I'd show it to them. And something that's very important with magazines, what we call the art of the photography. And uh, uh, anyway, that's where having Pat Ford as a friend, he loves to show that stuff. And, you know, a lot of it, back in the old days, it was like, if you ever showed that photograph somewhere else, don't let it show up in my magazine. They don't. They're not in a driver's seat anymore. Right. Yeah, the old copyright stuff was huge back in the day. I mean, if you had an image that even was similar to somebody else's copyrighted image, you would get a call or a letter from somebody. Yeah, well, the whole thing about that is, you know, sue me, son of a bitch. You know, <laughs> first of all, when you when you click the button, technically your image is copyrighted. So every time I use something, I always say, first of all, I make sure that I have permission. Mm-hmm. And this one of these last books I wrote, that one about fly patterns, God, that editor, and I didn't know this in the beginning, he put me through my paces. We had like 280 pages, 300 photos, and I had to get a permission on every one of them. Fortunately, most of them were mine. And if you look in there, the, the images are clear because I have a tripod, and I'd set it on a timer or whatever, and it wasn't like, you know. Right, right. Now, this, this, this book that you're finishing up now, what was the uh, motivation behind it, and what's the big difference? Well, first of all, I had creative control, and I, these are stories. These aren't, you know, take two turns of chenille and call me in the morning or uh, uh, for all around for better bill fishing before you're sure to use live bait or something like that. It's not instructional at all. Well, some of it is. I, I do. I, some of the stories are about my experiences out in the Intermountain West. And some of this, you can't write about the Gallatin or the Madison River or something like that without telling some stories. And some of them turn into homilies like, don't wade in this river unless you have a wading staff. You're going to get knocked in your ass. And But most of it, and some of it is is fictional, whereas some of it's factional. Factual. And some of the fictional stuff is really, really not just ribald, but some of the stuff is like if if you might recognize some of the characters, some of these guys who you know these shills who you know <laughs> somebody gives them a list of what to say and they you know that kind right. of stuff. Some of this stuff, I think you well, I, I'll deny it, but. Uh, <laughs> But I've got I've got 31 stories. I just inked the other one. I'll tell you this, the name of this one yesterday. It's, t- it's titled Chigarella. It's, I, I took this out of a column I wrote when I was at Florida Fishing Weekly. It was the most popular column I ever wrote. And it's about being bitten by chiggers. And, of course, we have Spanish moss here. And where I used to fish, they have those... Uh, uh, big leather ferns and stuff and uh, I wrote it I said a little bit about it and the itch and how bad it was and I've been bitten you know infested a bunch of times it's horrible you know what to do and what not to do but this lady I know called me with her husband and said look I, I I've I've heard of this but I don't know how I could have got them because I'm covered I mean my pants are bloused and everything else but I stopped off at this raunchy restroom on the way to a fishing spot. My husband and I did. And, of course, the husband's <laughs> laughing, and we knew what it was. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I had, all, I had 
30 people write in about that. And, oh, my, my husband, I know he goes fishing a lot because I got these things, and he had to bring something home from the drugstore, some of the blue ointment or quail shampoo, and I'm, just, <laughs> I'm sitting there, I'm biting my lip. But I never, I never really understood that much about it. You're not going to believe this, but this lady's a friend of mine. Um, uh, their husband was a, was a guide here, and she's coming back uh, here shortly. She's spent the uh, summer in western Pennsylvania, and believe it or not, this woman who had been infested with these things got bitten by a deer tick and got the Lyme disease. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and man, that is serious business. And, you know, they, they give you doxycycline and amoxicillin. And, I mean, these people go crazy. It has an, what we call an encephalopathic effect. I mean, they get nuts. I, I check my wife for deer ticks all the time to see that that's not what they're going <laughs> That's making her totally nuts. Yeah. Maybe maybe there's a lot of women out there that got Lyme yeah, disease well, that we always, don't know about. You, you see that bite, <laughs> and it looks like a bullseye. You know, the ring and the one in the middle. And Boy, you got that, you know, run, don't walk to uh, your doctor or to the ER. That's uh, you, you know, serious business. Yeah, real fast. It, it doesn't take long. I We have them here, um, but I know a lot of that is uh, in the... Uh, you know, like the Corn Belt North or whatever. And I actually I believe that a publisher for one of the companies I worked for got it, a female, and it makes you sick. Well, I think the, um, I think the, uh, from what I can understand, the way you're writing this book, I think it's going to be exactly what people want because when we do the, um, when we do the recordings here in the podcast, you know, they write in Apple reviews and all this stuff, and I get to hear their, their feedback almost immediately yeah and what they want and what they like and what they are looking for are the old stories they yeah. want more stories and less technical bullshit this is almost straight even in the what do you call it nostalgia it's about and 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 i make it very clear that i do this in the hope that some young buck picks this up and sees what was possible and does everything and keeps this in mind, number one, when he goes to the voting booth, and number two, with any participation in any organizations or when he strokes a check or whatever, that he makes sure where this money goes. There's a lot of stuff that's happening down here, and I sure don't ignore this. With this water, you know, as you certainly know, trickles down the state and everything, and it fuels our aquifer here. Right. And, I mean, like, for 13 or 14 cities, and... You know what we're doing right up the street here. We've got that deep well injection with the sewage and stuff like that. And I have a couple of days a month that uh, when I get in the shower on the fourth floor, and I know the difference between hydrogen sulfide, you know, rotten eggs and stuff like this. This smells like uh, right. an unflushed toilet. Right, right. And uh, I, I spoke to Nyla about that one time, and she was going to have somebody test it. And I sent her pictures of it, and we had just never got around to it because right. she like, so you, you you get a little political in some of the stuff that you wrote in the book? Oh, man. <laughs> Mount your horses, draw your swords. Nice, nice. But everybody's so scared to say something or scared yeah, to say are. what's on their mind. And then when you hear somebody, right, wrong, or indifferent, at least if they say it and they speak it, at least you feel like... I got to tell you this. I get this call the other day, and I pick up the phone, and I got that visual thing there, and it's somebody with XYZ first name. And the only woman I can think of is a real sharp young lady who's the sort of the daytime manager over here. At, and I call, go to call a number back, and it's this person with this name that I think I can recognize. And it turns out, and first of all, she has no control. She calls me back on a cell phone, and she has no control of the room she's in, which must, I'm judging from the gibberish that's going on, uh, be a, a high school cafeteria or whatever. So I have to wait like five minutes to get a clear line. To her. Right. And she wants me. She said, you remember me back before the pandemic? You were going to come out and talk to our fishing club. And there's nothing in that for me. First of all, I'm happy to do it. Uh, but now I said, I said, no, I'm not happy anymore. This, I've had some changes health-wise. And I said, I have Parkinson's, and you think I'm going to put myself in a position to lug 
my stuff, my slideshows and everything else through that den of critical race theory that you have out there with these kids. Uh, see an old man, they decide to kick me on the crown or something like that, and I'm going to do this. For, you you got to be nuts. And I just said it. <laughs> just let it come out. Yeah, I did. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. Well, it was like projectile vomit. <laughs> I've been I I've made my uh I wouldn't necessarily call them enemies, but I've made plenty of people a bit agitated over the, the limited media career that I've had by simply speaking the truth, saying what's on my mind. I'm not right 100% of the time. Well, you admit that. You know, you you invite as I do. You know, if you have a better idea, let's hear it. Right. And I'll entertain some rational discourse with you. I'm happy to do it. And, you know, I feel most fortunate when somebody actually brings me around to their way of thinking. Well, not that much. I mean, like, <laughs> I learned this from Vicky. Vicky's always right. It's well, always right. That's part of being a good spouse. Steve, tell, um, you, were, you were saying something to me on the phone the other day about before the 595 corridor was put in. Oh, and the guys that would go out in response to the accidents that were happening oh, out in the middle of man. nowhere. I never heard that before. Yeah. Do you want to hear the unabridged version? I want to hear, I want the audience to hear some of that. Because oh, when right. you started talking about that, I was like glued to the phone for a second. They had, listen, the deal was when I first went out there was like back in 02. It was in the 50s, I think. And 84 was two lane. And 27 was two lane, and I don't think there was anything, any cross streets until you got down by 27. Then we had no recreation areas or anything like that. It was just the glades. Right. And all you'd hear, the squawks of birds, and you'd hear, every once in a while, you'd hear one of these migrant buses going from West Palm Beach to down to West Miami somewhere. And these are the guys working in the farms? Yeah, and every so often, well, you know, down there on the way to Flamingo and how, you know, right. every so often, you know, with two lanes and all this nonsense going on, somebody would screech off the road and into the, into the ditch in a school bus. And my late friend, he was instrumental in trying to standardize tarpon fly pattern many years ago. I, um, he, um, the state paid him to strap on scuba gear, and this would be a couple days later with these bodies festering in lukewarm water. Mm. And he would have to jam his way into these buses, and they would put, they'd have a couple of these people on the, on the bank holding onto a rope, and he'd get these of rotted bodies which had, of course had decaying food <laughs> and they put it around and they'd drag them out the window and they'd get them up in the bank and the guy would go oh. and, and I mean if, if, if you weren't on Xanax which they didn't have then you, you just couldn't hold it down and Vicky went out with a guy this before I knew her uh, this is back in high school right. and this guy used to drive a wrecker out there in 84 and I remember this story and some guy had a flat tire, and he pulled off the side of the road, and he was standing behind the car, and somebody swerved off the road. He was between his car and whatever, and somebody hit him right here and cut his legs off. And uh, my friend went out with a wrecker just as the EMS was coming. I, I don't know if the guy was dead or not, but he said, the guy's legs were laying in the bushes. Still, oh. Yeah, I mean, don't... <laughs> No, let's not have <laughs> spare ribs for dinner tonight. Oh, but there was nasty. crap like that all the time out there. Well, that's that's what I want. I want the audience to understand, like because now it's just a metropolis of friggin' buildings and concrete, and there's people everywhere. And years ago, if somebody got hit, like with a car or ran into out of the into the ditch, it might have been a day or so before anybody figured it oh, out. Oh, absolutely right. I mean, now you're out in the middle of nowhere, which is now just city just urban everything and there were let me say there were strict class divisions which i don't necessarily agree with but there were there i mean you know so explain that so you had you say the the, the class divisions it was racial oh yeah that was part of it so yeah. you had blacks the latins yeah. the and everybody was the segregated? old lauderdale news i remember this at the I think it was 13A or at the back of it, they had like two columns. It was called the Negro Community News. And, you know, it. these people 
black people were held up to us as somehow different or inferior. And I mean, I've since learned uh, that that's not the truth. Of course. I had to hitchhike home from Chukaluski one time. Uh, I was over there with this fishing club I was in. And one of these uh, big shots was kind enough to drive me up to the intersection of 29 and Alligator Alley. And, you know, you're 100 miles, 120 miles out in the Everglades. Right. And it was three of these tough strapping that drove me right here to my neighborhood. And that, that turned my mind around. I had something recently, um, despite how spazzed up I am, I had to, for the first time in years, renew my driver's license. And I had to go up to Pompano Beach. And... <clears throat> The place was just mobbed. Tommy Green told me, he said, this is the one to go to. It's a, and, of course, I mean, he'd gone a different day. And I mean, it was, it was, there was like 200 people in there. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this lady saw me, and I've, I've got that, what do you call it there? And she said, you got to take a driving test. And I'm thinking, please. I said, the only reason I don't want to drive it is one in case my wife gets in trouble, be able to go out and you know, get the car out there. you got to take a driving test. And I... I respected that because it was the same rule for me as some of these other people were like, you know, why? why right. Um, but the people in that audience, I had just come from a therapy session up at Holy Cross at one of these doing doing squats, you know, without anything, you know, standing up, uh, you know, what do you call it? Squats. Uh, and. I couldn't hardly, they didn't have an armrest on the thing where they take your picture and sitting on there. And I had these guys, I had people of every color, every denomination, every orientation. I mean, I had this one guy. He looked like, got a linebacker. He said, over here, sir, you're in front of me in the line. I went, no, there's all these other people. He said, I say you're in front of me. I tip my hat. But I had people, I had women you all know right. all different colors uh, all uh, different every here sir can i help you do this and take take me by the arms and help my wife stand me up and get me on this i was not as good then as i am now but i really learned a lesson but i didn't want to put anything in that fa- farce book because i was afraid that you know there's always some Right. Eight ball who's going to say, well, that means that you were this or that. I don't see. I, I would love to hear more people's take on it like that, because that's something to celebrate. Yes, it is. In South Florida is the most diverse place that I've ever been in my life. We live together with all different people from all around the world. We love each other. We deal with each other. We help each other. And it's something to be celebrated. And it's never brought up. No, it, it's it, it can't be forgotten because it was never recognized in the first place. Listen, this neighborhood um, and I kind of uh, having not done this before, I really gloried. And in fact, I wrote a st- story about that, too, about living in a polychromatic neighborhood. And now the new thing here is that uh, we got a bunch of chicken thieves. OK, we got chickens. I got roosters over here and these guys are stealing. We got all kinds of signs on the posts and everything. And these guys are coming by and ripping the signs off and everything and stealing. And they shot an iguana. They didn't run over it. They shot it and left it in, in front of this one woman activist place. But you know what happened? The neighborhood has rallied. I already I don't mean to give myself a rotator tear patting myself on the back. But I've got somebody who uh, knows a bunch of people out in Davie, and she said, can you get somebody to trap these roosters? I said, in a minute, you can go scratch their, in their you know. Okay. And I've had some, I've had, I had a fight with a rooster once, one of these great big things. He hit me so hard, he knocked the shoe <laughs> off. Thank God I had a pair of Levi's on. When he came up with his feeder, I'd, I could have been talking to you in an even higher voice than I was now. Well, in this neighborhood in the 80s, they were stealing BMX bikes. Now they're running around stealing chickens and roosters. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. Well, the thing was for a while there it was these gopeds and stuff. But now this neighborhood has definitely morphed, and that's good. And I celebrate uh, Wilton Manor's diversity and stuff like that because, uh, you know, it's not a not a catechism I want to practice or anything else. But I think that uh, I I I think it's like red hair, blue eyes. It's 
these folks are born that way and I think there's so many of them that have so much to contribute and I'm happy they found a place that they feel safe. Yeah. I wish I felt the same way. Well, you know, and how do you say it? Change is never certain. Right. You know? That's right. It's, it's constant. Right. It's constant. And um, I think you've done a phenomenal job. Well, um, thank you. Well, I mean, you've adjusted, Steve. You went from, you know, way back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Now we're, you know, 2020. And the shit that we've seen in 2020 was stuff that we like we've never seen before. You're still standing, and you're coming out with a new book. Yeah, and we used when I saw, I was telling somebody when I went to junior high school out here. I went to Everglades the first year. I was on a cow pasture, and we had a real rainy year. And you know, with all the cow turds and stuff, we had the health department come out there, and everybody's parents had to sign off on it. And we all got typhoid shots. I think that's what it was. They'd come with the air gun and you'd get them for a couple of weeks. And, you know, the hundred of us standing in line like in the army. But now our kids used to ride their horses to school. Right. Guys used to bring their guns to school in the back of their, you know, the window of their trucks and stuff. And they used to go out and shoot rabbits up the road here, up by Pompano Park, and they'd eat them. I mean, they didn't shoot. Well, even in my lifetime, I can remember if you went west of 441, that's where we were, right there. Yeah, west of 441. You'd often see the stop signs and stuff with bullet holes in them, and you know people would ride by and oh. just you know shoot a sign or you know. And it wasn't you know it wasn't like any big deal no. to hear somebody shoot a sign or to shoot a rabbit or something like that right. out there. It was you know part of the course. Now if there's a shot, um, 911 is called immediately. Oh, listen, I just posted a photo this morning, and this one and a thing. It, it's it's. Uh, slow down panther habitat with about four of these and I mean you can tell I mean these are like 30 odd sixes or 357s and stuff I was here the other night and I heard this thing going up and bah, 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 over here and Vicky I said there's gunshot that went a firecracker I said you, you know I've been in the army I know what it sounds like she said I don't get it nobody could pull a semi couldn't squeeze the trigger that fast and I said I can tell you it wasn't auto because you know that's like Zip, you know. Right. I said, I'll tell you what that was. Somebody over here's got a bump stock. You know, pop, 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 pop. <laughs> you don't know what. Listen. You're shooting iguanas, maybe. No, I wasn't shooting iguanas. <laughs> yeah, this was. This was. I, I hear stories about them over here on the other side of Andrews. Uh, they have a, some condo or something under construction, and they have squatters in there ordering pizzas and stuff. It's, it's yeah. off the chain, man. Yeah. It is um, a new. Uh, definition of the jungle yeah well and you know and it's so you know what's so unfortunate is there are so many really right-minded intelligent people who and a lot of times did not get the same opportunity you know that I maybe had uh, nobody handed it to me I had a I got a scholarship I had it by making grades but uh, now uh, I mean like that Walter Williams says Take a job, any job, stay in school, don't get your girlfriend pregnant, and I forget the other thing is, and you're good to go. And that's pretty much it. And you might be uh, bagging groceries for two or three years, but you show up with a clean shirt on and stuff like that and a shave. Sooner or later, somebody's going to say, you know, come right. here, boy, I'm going to make you a star. Right, right. There's opportunity. Yeah, there really is. There really is. Steve, um... The way you look at things now compared to, let's just say, the, the 80s, because I think sport fishing and the magazines and everything really peaked probably in the, in the 80s. Yeah. How, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like there is something's missing? Do you feel that it's progression? Do you feel, I mean, how do you feel about it? Because it's changed so dramatically so fast. And now with digital age, it's yeah, just totally well, different. They, a lot of people lost their jobs. It's like the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, we used to, I, I, I like it when the light is just right. I like sitting there reading a book or a magazine. And the stuff, we used to take it, not so much a glossy magazine because the paper was not compostable. But, uh, uh, you know, you had something, a newspaper. But when I had that garden over there, boy, we saved newspapers and we used to, yeah, mix them. I used to get uh, horse manure from the city barn here, the horse barn. Right. And I mean, we made wonderful stuff with it. 
<laughs> no, I mean, if this, this compost, I mean, you'd grow tomatoes that were, they look like melon. I kid you not. I've, these little things I grow up here look like, <laughs> oh, no. So are you telling me that the paper is basically better used for compost and fertilizer no, now no, than it is for reading no you need no no that that it would listen some of these papers it would it would kill the plants but newsprint okay the ink is not poisonous and newsprint compost is is like in nature like in a forest or whatever it's a mixture of greens and browns fresh leaves pine needles that kind of stuff and you put them together and like our vegetable garbage we keep it in the refrigerator i'm not no meat no fish anything like that but lettuce butts and things like that and put them in there and let it banana peels and stuff and when it starts before it gets funky we take it and bury it in one of my things out here and in um, a couple of weeks it's uh you see some little bugs in there nothing you know not bitey bugs but uh there's microbial life and bacteria, and that's what people don't understand. Is people have never been on a farm or whatever. They right. don't understand that's what it takes to grow. They go over here to one of these nurseries, and they don't understand. They buy a tomato plant, and this thing's been juiced up with potassium orgasm or something like that. I mean, it's like, right. I don't want to eat that. Right, yeah. right. Now, the um, let's talk about that garden. Yeah. Um, at one point, you were producing enough... Oh, food to actually feed people that oh we did we had the church it was an episcopal church and we had a food bank the people did not have to be members we had poor people in the community that used to walk down the street and we'd distribute the stuff to them whatever we had and we had other food banks and places you know food uh, markets there's a lot of stuff that's not spoiled but you know, the melons got cracked. They're good for one day. Or the onions and stuff like that. We got a guy that does that in the building to old people. And we used to just hand it out to them. And plus you had, uh, if you wanted a plot in that garden, you didn't have to pay anything. You didn't have to nothing. And now there were, I think, some people in the hierarchy of the Episcopal Church that uh, thought that, uh, you know, grace is free if you, you know. Right. But we never, and this... Uh, a lady who was our priest, in fact, she was the first Haitian woman, or Haitian, what do you call it, priest. Um, you know, it was open to everybody. Incidentally, I'll tell you something. This, I haven't gotten an answer. I know of, the last I heard, she had Parkinson's and was very ill with it. There's a kid that used to live, used to rent a place down the street here. And there's every possibility he could have hung around that garden. And now I have it. And I don't know anything about Paraquat, but we had this lady that, uh, she she worked for the school board. She used to water uh, stuff, and they had this water truck. And I remember once um, they put something down there, and it got on my, I had some okras growing, and it ended up getting curly and dying. And I took a space the size of this, and I never planted anything there for years until whatever it was decomposed. But then we had the guy who used to, uh, that that stuff that the cancer causing it, and I, with my garden, I never allowed any pelleted fertilizer, anything in mine. I used my own, I made my own compost. And I made my own uh, water and stuff like that. Being in the in the middle of the city, how did you come up with enough land to actually produce that much stuff? Because these um, rapacious developers had yet to put their greedy eyes on it. There so, was one guy that was doing something downtown, but somebody I knew got wise to what he was trying to do. And, you know, they get some kind of tax exemption or something like that. The guy was an architect. They had a, what do you call it, garden down on I was 3rd Avenue or whatever. I used to see it. But we had this thing, but it's, um, well, nobody ever said much about it. It, it has its own website or, 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 or Facebook page. It's My Beautiful SMR South Middle River Garden. And, of course, I don't post anything anymore because these developers that came in here, D.R. Horton came in there, and they just, and 
this was the best soil in the world, worms, all kinds of stuff. They just bulldoze it, and there's big piles, and every time it rains, the water that runs off, it's not like clear water where, you, you know, puddles where you can see the road. It's this... That white muck stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like... So, so you guys were farming on... Um basically unused land yeah. and it came to a screeching hole because of development yeah. which would be the way that circle works here in right. Broward County right and I, that's one thing I wrote about it in a story I wrote titled Old New River and it's about you know if you're looking for resources find find a river and about what happened here and where this thing New River originates and how this land which you know at one time helped contribute to some of the best farming region in the area you know what do you call it? Uh, Dania is the tomato capital of the world. Right, right. But it's all, it's because of fertilizer. It's not because people uh, amend the soil. It's its like, you know, it's like when they do corn up north, they inject liquid ammonia into the ground. Right. People don't realize the tomato um, industry here in Florida, and they don't realize the cattle industry here in Florida, because oh, they're both huge. Huge. And nobody even pays attention to it. We're the second largest producer of vegetables in the United States. And I credit, you know, Nyla is, who you've interviewed, Nyla, Nyla Pipes. Pipes. Yeah, she is a real farm advocate, as well as a, a clean water advocate. And she's really nailed a lot of stuff about the septic seepage. And, God, I grew up in septic over here, but we made the transition over here in Lauderdale Villas. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, you know... Don't don't say anything. Don't bitch about the, the Florida uh, grower with your mouth full. <laughs> right. Well, I think um, I think a lot of the conservation efforts kind of have the cart before the horse. You know, they're looking for people to point their fingers at. Yeah. And like, there's maybe one guilty party. And the way I look at it is. There's so much guilt to be spread around. Yeah, there Everybody is. has a part and a piece in why um, they've taken advantage and exploited our environment down here in South Florida. And until everybody swallows that pill and admits to themselves that they're a piece of the problem, they're not the problem, but a piece to the problem. And hopefully people like Nyla Pipes, people like the Captains for Clean Waters, will gain enough popularity to actually push the narrative. Yeah. Because everybody knows the problems, but there's no narrative about the problems. Oh, oh listen, I blame myself in this this uh, the story that you're talking about, about out here on, on Route 84. And I say, writers like myself, are, but, but also, these people, It's some of them we call the ad heads, the advertisers who want to sell, you know, like uh, they want to have a picture of somebody sticking a gaff in the last dolphin in the Gulf Stream, right. Florida Gulf Stream, while they're stepping on its nest. But the reality is everybody, you know, do this, do that, uh, go over, I want to catch uh, redfish at Chukaluski, but uh, nobody, it's, it's like deer hunting in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't care if you do it as long as I get my one. But if you got, I don't know how many hundred thousand licensed anglers in South Florida or in Florida, and if everybody gets one. Uh, right, right. Yeah. It, it. I mean, it's funny because we make fun of the people that don't actually practice this sport. Yeah. But in a weird way. That's the only way the sport's going to stay alive, mm -hmm. is that most people don't practice. If we were all out there together, could you imagine? There would be no resource. We, we'd all be fighting for 50 feet yeah. of space. So maybe that's a blessing in disguise that most people don't actually practice the sport. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, there's a lot of things that, thankfully, a lot of sports that, thankfully, not everyone practices. <laughs> well, fishing. Just check the wall at your local post office. Right, right, right. Now, Steve, um, the book that um, is getting ready to come out, um, you were telling me that it was a big deal that you were going to publish it yourself. Yes. Explain that to the audience, okay. please. Okay, that is, to me, the quintessence of making a book. Um, I have more risk, but I also have more potential profit. But in this case, at the quantity that I'm producing it, um, it's, I have to know, I have to assemble, I have to edit all the stuff. I don't have, I mean, I had, uh, 
I got the lady from IGFA to check some punctuation stuff, and I paid her to do it, and it's very good. But I had some bad experiences also, and I ended up, Vicky and I ended up having to go over the whole thing, uh, 31 stories, and, you know, read them, the whole deal. But when I have this done, I am dealing with a specific person at a print shop in Akron, Ohio, known as 48-Hour Printing. And they're wonderful, and they publish a book, and you can get it free. All you have to do is Google 48hourprinting.com. And the guy who's owned the business for 30 years wrote this book. And the book is titled, very similar to a book I wrote, The Ultimate Guide to Publishing Your Own Book. And he talks about the differential between Amazon or or doing this or having somebody else get it. And the... particularly if it's something that really goes and you can produce it inexpensively enough. But, I mean, I want color photos. I want some stuff in there. It's not going to be as many as one of these big books, but I want it to look good. But so, in other words, you more risk but more potential profit. With this one, I had an investor who helped me out a little bit with and my proviso, and I don't think he'd ask for it, is that uh, the first X number of dollars that I make, he, he gets it. But he, he claims he won't take it. But I don't, homie, don't play that way. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Gotcha. Yeah. And, um, but this, I will have made a book. I don't have to write to somebody's freaking narrative. I don't have to say what, uh, uh, you know, who in company tells me to say or mm-hmm. uh, bring your liniment or any of that other crap. I, I do this, uh, you know. Right now, you have the ultimate freedom to do what you want with your, with with your book. I'll be proud to do it, and you know, if it turns out that this is the last thing I'm ever able to do, I can take a little pride in leaving, you know, some sort of a legacy, and maybe, God willing, it someday in the future, somebody will pick this up, and it'll really get, uh, you know, where uh, make a difference. Yeah, yeah, where it can make a difference. The um, no. You're going to be able to sell this direct to consumers? Yeah, no. What I'm going to do, for the first time, I will be a retailer. In other words, no more, and I just can't afford to do it after that, no more review copies, no more freebies, no more of that, because these people eat you alive. We sold very few of what I believe was a pretty good book with that 50 women. Right. That was the last podcast we did. You finished up the 50 women who fish. Yeah. You gave me a copy of the book which is probably one of the things you're going to eliminate now. Because you were telling me that book was, what, 60 bucks to produce one of them? Something like that? Yeah, well, that's what we were selling them for. But I would would get, uh, I think, 15% of that or $9. But we didn't sell enough. I mean, I've spent 27 months writing that. I I had to write the index. Right. And, I mean, I love Tom Perro. He's very good and everything. But while he's up steelhead fishing and... uh, I, you know, British Columbia, uh, I'm here banging away at that. And, I, I, you know, uh, those were not uh, the, you know, wealthiest days of my life. And I tried to, uh, you know, I wanted to make some money. Right. I also, I think since then, I also had that, uh, I have a one about backwater flies from swamp to surf. And it's a, a fly pattern book. And it's, I learned my lesson with those because... What happens is uh, the people who buy them, there's a lot of these, even with no resource, we have these fly fishing clubs. And even if there's nothing to fish for, these guys like to sit there and, you know, spin their bobbins and twink their tweakers and stuff like that. And what they'll do is they'll have 500 people in one of these clubs and they'll buy three of these books or two of these books and they'll have a lending library where you come in uh, and you get the book for two weeks and go home and learn how to tie the flies and then you turn it back in. So <laughs> sold nothing. Sold nothing and educated yeah, I think everybody. Paro, yeah, Paro, I think, is also, he feels the way I do. I mean, he and I have become friends. I, I don't, I can't speak for him, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I think that's one, but I will tell you the name of this new one now. It's the new one, and yeah, no picture of it yet or anything, but it's titled Hot Licks, Peacocks, and Pricey Perfume, uh, a, a Young Man's Adventures in the in the Great Outdoors. Very and good. it's about, uh, the cover's going to have a picture of uh, something, about, you know, and uh, also uh, 
big, big peacock, like an 18-pounder. The guide's holding up for me. And um, a professionally taken picture of a really smoking model. And uh, that's the, that's what we talked about. That's what we did a lot of that. Well, now that I got you to spill the beans on uh, the new book coming up, I really want to thank you for taking some time being on the Real Guy podcast. Oh, so let, man, my pleasure. My, you, my honor. You're the f- first, should I say, real guest on the Real Guy podcast that I interviewed twice. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I was looking forward to the day to get over here uh, to get it done. Me too. Because uh, I think it's guys like you that set the foundation for my generation and the guys like me. And... We owe owe it to you. Yeah, the the gratitude. I just want to express the gratitude that we have. You, Tommy Green. Thank you. um, So many of you. I really appreciate that. You know, and um, I really love it that you care about the guides and the industry, and you also care about the new people. Yeah, The youth. I I do. I know it because I I feel it when we talk, and you're a real guy, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for being on The Real Guy Podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Run that dog. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.